Rocktober. Coming soon to the Mojo Radio Show. Hey everybody and welcome to another edition of the Mojo Radio Show. Nice to have you on the bus, the big red bus we call the Mojo Radio Show. It is full steam ahead. It's in sixth gear on the highway rolling into Rocktober 2017. i got to say the work we've done on Rocktober, it's going to be a cracking month. It's going to be a big one, folks. And we are leading into it with, I think, one of the best shows we have done in quite a while in terms of wall-to-wall gold. He's the mental strength coach for the Seattle Seahawks, Michael Gervais. Uh, he's a sports psychologist, and i got to say, he's an absolute gun. We, we know of this guy, heard him speak, got him on the show, and my warning for you is get a pencil and paper straight up because there is a lot of gold in this, a lot to think about. And number two is I would immediately go into iTunes and save this episode because you're going to want to listen to it again and again and again. <laughs> Before we start to get into it, uh, Robbo, welcome to the show. Thank you, mate. Spring is here. The sun is shining. 31 degrees outside. I am a happy man. Uh, could you put your shirt on now? <laughs> I think you come back inside the studio and put your shirt on because you're cutting quite a large figure, taking up quite a bit of room here oh, in the studio. I was just boosting the suntan from your warm inner glow, that's all. Picking up your vitamin D. Thanks. Hello, right. Smithy. That's what I like about you. The Mojo Radio Show. Now, folks, uh, we don't have any advertising or sponsorship on this show. Hello, my friends at Doseki and Tim Terms. Come on, Tim Terms. Uh, however, what keeps us fueled is reviews. And we had a lovely review this week from Pura Vida GC. That's all I needed. Just the name was sexy for me. Pura, Pura Vida. Vida GC. Wow. Who said, I love this podcast. I found this one about two months ago and I am slowly getting through the back catalogue of shows. It has exposed me to so many people, products and ideas that I would not have otherwise have known about. I love the show and highly recommend it for anyone who enjoys self-development, personal and business growth and a bit of a laugh too. That wasn't part of the brief. No. <laughs> as long as they're laughing with us, not at us. That's the, that's the yeah, main well, thing, right? <laughs> I think it could be the latter. However, yes. uh, thank you, Pura Vida GC. It gets our mojo working. It's what we live for. Folks, do us a favour. Follow Pura Vida GC. Get onto iTunes. Hit the ratings and reviews section. Give us a review, some stars, a one-liner. Just let us know you're out there. It, uh, it gets our mojo working. Now, uh, before we get into the show... You've got some hot news about Rocktober as well, right? I have I have a number of things. Uh, yes, I have some hot news. However, because the Mojo Radio Show never really does anything by the book, because we can't read, let's face That's it, right. um, <laughs> we are actually starting Rocktober one week early. Why? Because we can. It's our show. We can do whatever the hell we want. Next week, folks, we have got a pretty special – it's special for a number of reasons. Number one, for four years, anybody who's been on the long road with us on the bus will know we've been wanting to do a show, which is Mojo in the Bedroom, and it's probably not going to be a show specifically for the kiddies. However, uh, it is a show that will help you get your mojo working in the bedroom from psychology to sleep – nutrition, libido, it's all those sorts of things. It's not a dirty show. It's just a show that is specifically about helping you in the bedroom with your relationships. And 
from the stuff that I've heard so far, it's very, very powerful. It's a long-form show. It's going to be a couple of hours. I think because we, the more we get into it, the more we discovered and found interesting for ourselves. Hmm. So that is going to be the unofficial start to Rocktober. And that's going to be hot. But the other part that's going to be hot is we have the Rocktober Rocket Fuel. Yeah, we've partnered up with Chili Bomb. Chili Bomb. Chili Bomb. Uh, our friends at Chili Bomb, this is not a paid spot. This is just a bit of fun for us. The idea will be that during Rocktober, if you leave us a review on iTunes, you will get a free Rocktober rocket fuel, a little bottle of rocket fuel. It's a chilli sauce. It's it's hot. Like it's not insane hot, Mm. but it certainly is rocket fuel. Now here's what's in it. It's got three different kinds of chilies. It's got cayenne pepper. Yeah, okay, it's warm, but it's not hot. Mm. But it does have Carolina Reaper, and Carolina (laughs) Reaper is one of the two hottest chilies in the world. Yeah. And third on the hottest chilies on the planet, I think, is ghost, the ghost chili. Mm-hmm. So we've got a little bit of Carolina Reaper, a little bit of ghost and some cayenne pepper, and we've put that into our own brew. And I've got to say the thing that I love most about the rocket fuel is it's got this really nice, oh, I don't know, Louisiana smoky southwest barbecue smell and taste to it. Um, I had to do some taste tests. I was going to say, you know, if you had a sample. Wow, well, just for quality control. Uh, and I did have a Dos Equis handy because she was a little hot. Yeah. Uh, but I've got to say, I had it with some uh, guac, some cornies. Mm. Uh, hello, our friends at Mission Corn Chips. And, uh, and a Dos, and uh, it's sensational, I've got to say. And it's going to be free. Uh, our expense, we'll send it out to you. All you've got to do is leave us a review. I'm just hoping we don't get too many because uh, we're going to pay for the freight and the making of this stuff. But it's called the Rocktober Rocket Fuel. Thanks to Rodney at Chili Bomb. More details to follow, but um, it's really cool. I I love this stuff. Last year we did the Buddha Brew with Peter Harrison at Fish River Roasters. This year it's the Rocktober Rocket Fuel. It's good fun. It is good fun. And it's also nice to showcase people who have got their mojo going too, isn't it? Pete and Rodney both have their mojo going and uh, and their products certainly reflect that too, right? Yeah, and just a quick shout-out to uh, Matt from Bear Brewing. He's the guy who built this formula for us, Bear Brewing in Sydney, who are experts in making chilli sauces and stuff. Uh, good on you, Matt. It's bloody great, mate. I wouldn't know. I haven't tried it yet. <laughs> the Mojo Radio Show. We don't take ourselves too seriously. Oh, thank God. On to today's guests and without further ado, here's the... That's called the sports performance, the mental coach, the sports psychologist for the NFL team, the Seattle Seahawks. And if anybody knows their NFL, these guys are at the top of their game. They've played and won a Super Bowl. This guy works with Olympic gold medalists. He works with the Super Bowl champions. He works with coaches. And I think what I like about Michael Gervais is that he has the science and, my goodness, when you hear what he's got in terms of science behind his thinking. It's very deep, 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 deep in research. But then he has this really nice way of applying it to the world of us, normal folk out just trying to make our way in the world. And this really is a cracking, cracking show. Michael works with the top performers in business and sport and community. And uh, we're very, very thankful to have him on the program 
Uh, Michael Gervais, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show, mate. Thank you so much for having me. Looking forward to this conversation. When when people meet you and that question about what do you do, what do you like to reply with? Yeah, I think that that's a great question because it's complicated to explain in like one phrase or one word. It's not like, you know, engineer or, you know, professional athlete. It's nothing like that. So I'll, I'll tell you the trade and training, and then I'll tell you how I answer it if I'm on airplanes and how I answer it if I'm around, you know, <laughs> professional. So, okay. So um, by trade and training, I am a sports psychologist. So the, the training part is an undergraduate degree in psychology, um, a master's degree in kinesiology, then a PhD in psychology with a specialization in sport and then licensed in the state of California in the United States, and then cut my teeth in rugged and hostile environments to really work to understand how the mind works when it's really intense and performance is on the line right now. So that's how I describe it. And that's a mouthful. That's not never going to fit in an that elevator. That is a mouthful. No, put that on the cover of a book. <laughs> it doesn't work. It's got an A4 business card. Yeah. And when I'm on air, airplanes, like I never say any of that. I tell people I'm a, like a traveling insurance man. And it instantly <laughs> pop their headphones back in and, you know, I have a nice, quiet, introverted flight. Yeah, yeah. like John Candy, I'm a shower ring salesman. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't, yeah, that doesn't work either. Well, we didn't know any of the first stuff. We actually thought you were... Uh, Insurance guys, well, we're on the show. It's talk about business insurance. So, um, that's going to be an interesting uh, 45 minutes. <laughs> let's pretend we're on a plane. Um, Michael, I want to start at the start with you, and I've got a load I want to work our way through, but just uh, I first came across you through your podcast, which I love, and mm, I'm a you. long, long time listener, first time caller. Um, the podcast Finding Mastery, I love. And I think the thing I love most about it is how you you do delve into it. Like you are a digger. You dig into things that people say. And I want to ask you about some of the guests you've had on a bit later on in the show. Mastery itself, you always pose the question to your guests about how do they see, how would they define mastery? But I'd like to go back to the master of mastery and say, how, how do you define it? Oh, that's good. I mean, I think that I'm still learning. I'm still working it out. I'm you know, 20 years in the field, 100 interviews just around that specific question, and I'm still trying to sort it out. I don't think it's an easy answer. I wish it was. But the way that I'm playing with it right now is that uh, there's two components to it. There's mastery of self and mastery of craft. And um, the mastery of self is really an investment and inner engineering to be able to um, have command of oneself in any environment. So, you know, to be progressive in the learning approach, to be able to understand and through a, a series of um, discovery processes to understand who you are really at your center. And that's the mastery of self. So it's an insight, it's a discovery process, it's an understanding, and then the, the mental skills and tools to have command uh, of your mind. And then mastery of craft is how the mastery of self gets expressed. And masters of craft and self are able to play in the nuances. They're able to really dig into um, the, the frames and the, not the frames, let me set it up differently, is that let's say we're playing tennis and um, you're an expert and I'm a novice. I don't understand what you're doing, right? It's too hard for me because I'm thinking about where to put my feet and where to hold my racket and where to put the, you know, where, how to hit the ball. 
And I can't understand the frames. You're working at faster frames per second than I am. So I'm at frame one to frame two. And let's say you're an expert. You're at frame one, 1 1.5, frame two, 2.5. Like you've got different speed uh, that you're playing the game. Now, masters of craft, they're playing in the spaces between the spaces. And so literally they're playing in spaces where the rest of the world can't quite see and understand exactly what they're doing. They make it look easy but they're playing in the space between. That's gold. Gold out of the gates. We've got gold mastery straight up. Straight out of the gates, gold. <laughs> yeah, may- maybe. We're still we're still trying to sort it out, that's for sure. <laughs> I'm still waiting for them to talk about insurance. I'm not sure what's going on. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I'll, I'll add one more to it, which is uh, I think there's one more vector on it. So master yourself, mastery of craft. And then there's a phrase that has stuck with me for a long time. And I, I fired up this um, program called Late Night Sports in the late 90s in America. And it was, a, um, it was a way I was working out the concepts of sports psychology. And so I found government funding to open up a gym at, from 8 p.m. to midnight on Saturday nights. And it was like a crime prevention program. And the, the entry was free other than the, the attendees, which were from the bottoms of Los Angeles. I mean, this was the worst neighborhoods from Los Angeles. Uh, gang involved, gang um, deeply gang uh, engaged, would show up into this gym. I had a DJ, I had a bones table, we had um, this whole setup with three open courts, and we'd flip the lights on. The only price to admission was they had to listen to me for 15 minutes. And I, I would tell them, like, listen, I just learned this last week in my master's degree program or whatever. And I did this for 18 years when I was trying to sort out like the, to get to the, to the gold dust of the, the theory of sports psychology. And there was one man that said to me, there's a long way to get to this one point. This one man said to me, and he was six foot five, as big as you can imagine, as angry as you would you, you hope somebody from that neighborhood um, would never corner you in a dark alley. And he says, listen, here's what it is. Game recognizes game. If you've got it, you can spot it anywhere. And so that's what I think mastery is, is there's another vector, which is if you understand the nuances of your craft at such a level, you can recognize it and spot it in other people that are masterful at either self or craft. So it is recognizable. I, in all the stuff I've heard of your, on your podcast interviews, I haven't heard that story, but I have to say, mate, that is just the most profound piece of gold. I love that. And parents, for, for yeah, parents yeah. to hear that, the game recognises game, look in the mirror. That's, gee, um, mate, thank you for sharing that because that is an absolute ripper. Yeah, isn't that good? I mean, like, oh, that, man, it's that's tops. Yeah, that was like 15 years ago. You know how one phrase that somebody just drops on you? you, you yeah, so that was one of them for me. Okay, well, the show's done. Uh, we've got what yeah. you want. <laughs> Thanks for your time. <laughs> Michael Gervais <laughs> from the Seattle Seahawks. Thanks, mate. <laughs> Classic. You guys are fun. Um, you mentioned the word space, and I want to just pause there for a second. With all the work you've done in study digging, the interviews you've done, work with the players at the Seahawks, I'm curious to know the explanation of that space between I know what I want to do but I'm hesitant to do it and I don't do it. There's a space between I make a decision right now and I can see what I want to do, but there's all this hesitation. There's a space between that taking the first step. 
What have you learned about that, Michael, that you could share with somebody to say, here's how to get around that space of hesitation? Yeah, in in um, I was fortunate enough to learn from people that are extreme athletes and adventure athletes, and they work in the back countries of you know some very rugged territory. And when they make mistakes, you know it could cost limb, it could cost their life. And um, you know, imagine looking down the you know a, a chute that's never been um, ripped on skis, you know, but you got a 40 foot vertical to drop into and it's just a heavy, heavy scene. And if they hesitate instead of commit, that's where things go wrong. And that, so it is that space between hesitation and commitment where we reveal who we are. And so how do you work with that? One is it's, there's a pre um, disposition. No, I'm sorry, not disposition. There's a assumption that the we or that person has already got right to the edge of their capability. And that's really important. So that's the first part of it is right when you're at the edge of your capacity and capability is when um, that hesitation begins to really pop up. But part of the problem is that it can be just perceived edge of capability, the perceived edge of limit. So the real edge of limit is one variable and the perceived edge of limit is the other. And what happens for most of us, we perceive our ledge to be much higher and dangerous than it actually is. And that's where I start first is working out like, okay, if you think something's dangerous, how do you want to respond? If you think something's heavy, how do you want to respond? And ultimately what we need to get to is a mindset of conviction, right? To be able to to stomp that first line or that first uh, turn or to take that um, that if you're in a uh, cage and you're doing MMA or whatever, to really have conviction when you throw your strikes, whatever the sport might be. And it can be the same thing if you're speaking to um, somebody in a loving relationship is to have conviction about how much you care and have conviction about the vulnerability that you'll walk into that relationship with or that conversation with. So it's a long way of me saying perceived risk, real risk, and then um, backing in the type of mindset that you want to have. And then let me add a third variable. Then we do the front loading of the mental skills training to help people just like you train your body. You can train your mind. We front load the mental skills for people to be more calm, more confident, more focused, to, to trust themselves more deeply so that when they reach that perceived or real edge of their capabilities, that they're able to respond eloquently. And that's the whole inner engineering. That's the whole game. Can we explore that just for a second? And I think in, what's I call it, common, common self-help vocab, people would talk oh, wait, about hold on, hold on, passion. Hold, hold, wait, hold on. I just threw up in my mouth. Self-help. What, 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 what was that phrase you just said? <laughs> yeah, I did. I, I definitely threw up in my mouth. Sorry, guys. That, 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 that light I just threw up on my mouth, that's going to the promo. Yeah, possibly. <laughs> and it, you, won't be the, you won't be the first guest to do that when we were asking questions either, mate. There's <laughs> normally a mouthful of Tim Tams that come back up again. Um, <laughs> oh, my God. It's just that, that self-help such a bad rap, you know, like, yeah. It is. And, and, I, and I don't mean it in that, you know, selling books and audio programs. I mean it in terms of the word passion gets talked about a lot, whether it be in the corporate world, personal world, sporting world, you hear that word passion, which I'm not particularly a fan of, but let's just use that because I've heard you talk about this before. You said successful people embrace the unknown, and if you don't, that can put a blanket over your passions. 
Talk me through the successful people you know that do that. Why does that work and how does it relate back to that space? Okay. All right. Love it. All right. So if passion, let's, let's take the word passion and replace it with a fire in your belly or an inner fire like that, that zest, that zeal, that kind of grunty place where you just burn like, like that's the fire in the belly is really what passion's about for me. And what gets in the way of that fire in the belly in is fear and fatigue. So if you wake up and you are not taking care of a recovery program and you just wake up and, and you're exhausted over and over and over again, the last thing that you're going to do is, is be able to stoke that fire. The other piece is fear. And so if you're chronically afraid to move into the unfolding and unpredictable unknown, if you're chronically musing um, or worrying about that state, literally the unknown, then that state of anxiety is an, is the heavy blanket that sits on top of uh, our inner fire, you know, the fire in our belly. So that's where I'm coming from. And what I've learned is those that are exceptional world-class at doing or thinking, they're able to get right on the edge because they know that in the unfolding, unpredictable, unknown, in that space is where so much is revealed to them about who they are. It revealed to them about how their training of their mind and their craft has, you know, has it been worthwhile and uh, how to get better. And it just so happens that some of those environments, people get hurt when they make mistakes, some die, you know, not to be overdramatic. But for most of us, what happens in those moments is that we, we look bad. And as soon as we can just stare down that thing, like, okay, I'm, I'm just done with looking bad. I love you, but I don't give a shit what you think about me anymore. You know, holding those two principles at play to have deep love and care for other people, but not give a shit what they think about you. That is the space for people to play, to have freedom in their own life and to um, have that fire in the belly more often. At the, at the head of the show, you talk through the work you've done, the study you've done, the education you have, which is amazing. And the thing that really got me was at the end of that, you talked about rugged and hostile environments. And I don't really hear a lot of people in your field talk about that area. And, and that, that piques my interest in, you said that rugged and hostile environments teach us and they teach us by leveraging real fear. Based on what you've just talked about and that rugged, and hostile environments. When when you personally face a fearful situation, Michael, with all the stuff you've learned now and the people you've met and worked with, how do you stare that down? Like, how do you face rugged and hostile environments? That it's a wonderful question because we're getting into the mechanics of it. And so, when I was younger, I didn't know how to do it. I, I'm still learning. I don't want to set up the wrong picture for you. But when I was younger, I had no idea. So, what would happen for me in those moments is. I would literally have an inner shake. My heart would pound. My my hands would sweat. My lung, uh, my breathing rate would change. My mind would wander and and scan the world for what was dangerous. Why I was feeling so uh, out of sorts. And it's literally like a micro choking, a choking, or a mini panic experience that would take place. And I bet you can relate to that, right? I bet there's there's times in your life, yeah, that you relate to that. And then. And then, so that's what it feels like when you're in those experiences and you don't have the tools, the mental skills and tools to be able to manage it. But those mental skills and tools at that point, at best, will help you just feel a little less agitated. It's, you're still going to be agitated, like from an internal state, an internal experience. 
but then then what we do is like we there's a point in time when you have the insight and awareness of how to build confidence that's real and credible in any environment because you've let go of the the modern day fears of what others think of us that's for most people that's the most rugged environment it's emotionally rugged and the people that I've learned from are people that are in physically rugged environments. And so it just becomes super crystallized when you know that there's physical swift uh, consequences if they make mistakes. And so it just becomes all that more pressing for people to say, listen, Mike, if I don't get my stuff together and if I'm not on point in the backcountry, in the cage, you know, wherever I might be that's dangerous, then – then like stuff's going down. This, this isn't going to work out. So I got to be right. And so what ends up happening for people that invest that kind of time is they start to look forward to the moments where their body turns on when they're right at the edge of their capacity. So this is a subtle little change that's happening. At one point, it was like, man, I don't want to be in that situation. Why do I do this to myself? Why do I, why do I put up my hand and agree to do this public speaking event and 30 hours before it, I'm a mess. Why do I keep doing this to myself? And then suddenly it changes to, okay, here's my heart rate. It's pounding. I'm still eating breakfast and my presentation isn't for another 15 hours today. Like, okay, hold on. Let me control myself. Let me breathe to back it down. Let me come back to the present moment. Let me remind myself of all the things um, that give me the right to know that I can crush it later in the afternoon and represent myself in an authentic and purposeful way. And that subtle shift from uh, hesitation, avoidance, and constriction, literally of mind and craft, and, and when it shifts over to like, I can't wait for these moments because then I get to see if I'm, if, I'm just, if I'm able to walk the talk or if I'm just full of hot air. And it's that sh subtle shift that changes everything. Our show was all about finding usable, practical things that we can use to get our mojo working in and out of work, Michael. And I first heard you on the psychology podcast and you talked about something which I can absolutely promise you I've used on a daily basis. It was one of the most profound things where I just want to talk for a second about, you know, this, this I guess, mindfulness or this living in the now thing that's going on right now, but you talked about the center of now. I took that on board from that moment. And this on a day goes by where I don't use it. And I find it one of the most profound things for centering myself. Could you explain the center of now and how we as listeners could use it to optimize our day? Oh, that's so good. That's so good that you found, you found that to be useful. I think it's pretty esoteric. So um, the fact that you were able to, you know, made, made it real is really good. You're, okay. What you're really saying is you're a freak. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I'm not saying that at all. I think, but I think it's 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 challenging to understand how we work with the moment, right? Whatever moment, and I say when I say we, how an individual works with a particular moment in time. And pop psychology will say your mind can only be, you know, it's either in the present moment, it's in the past, or it's in the future. But that's not totally right. You know, that's making it easy for people to grapple with, but it's not totally right. Because right now, if you and I are having a conversation and we start thinking about other parts of our life that are busy or that we need to get to or whatever, if we're, so like part of us is present in this conversation and part of our mind wanders to the future. Mm. 
So it's like that's that's not being in the full complete center of right now. The full complete center of right now is um, being completely absorbed. My mind, my body, my spirit, my my doing is completely engaged in the task at hand. And that task at hand could be. I don't know, it could be anything from washing dishes to having this conversation to, you know, taking a um, 20 foot jumper in, in game seven of the NBA finals. It could be lots of different things, but that's the center of the moment. And those moments are precious and they're amazing. And if we can string those moments together, we get glimpses of our potential. Okay. So if we split our minds between a little bit of our resources are in this moment and a little bit of our resources are thinking about later, then that's where we move to the edges of the present moment. So it's like reduced our impact of being fully present by splitting our resources between some of it is now and some of it is later, like kind of like a hard drive and a processor. So there's a player about to go into a big game and you're in the dressing room and you want to bring that player to the moment. There is a listener who on the weekend is going to make a speech at a wedding and they know their time is coming and they're sitting at the table and they need to bring themselves to the absolute moment. Because they're making a speech at a wedding, that's a very important moment. You, you really have to deliver in that moment for the bride and groom. Or there is a big presentation and there's somebody sitting in a boardroom, the client's about to arrive and it's all on the line. Nail this, you're a hero. Don't nail this. It's not going to be good. Tell me how you would bring somebody to the center of now. Tell me the questions you would use or a quick process you would use that somebody could take away from this podcast and say, do this and it will assist you in being completely in the moment when you know you have to deliver. Love those questions. So the first is like, um, you know, big game. The second is a big moment for the wedding, right? Like those types of experiences. The first thing I'd say, if they came to me like right before and they're like, Hey, you know, uh, give me something. I'd say you're, f- <laughs> 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 and, and, and they'd say, they say, they say, why? And I say, cause you're thinking about it. You're thinking about it completely wrong. Right. And they'd look at me and they go, Jesus, Gervais, you again. Like what? Like, and I say, seriously, like, you've got the whole model wrong. The, the model is not like I need to do something special in this one, one particular moment. There, so there's no such thing as a big moment. That's where we start. That's where the model begins. And you could flip that on its head in, in all the Zen traditions and say every moment's a big moment. Like you could go either direction with this. But there's no such thing as one moment later in time is bigger than another. Certainly some have different – they create different trajectories in our life. But the idea that this moment that you and I have right now is um, less important than any other moment, the, the math for that is pretty clean, is that if we, you and I were to strip away our ability to live in this moment, that's where life ends for you, for me, right? If I can't live in this moment, then I'm, by definition, I don't have life. So each moment is unique, it's fragile, it's temporary, and um, getting to the depth of that, not just hearing it and listening to that phrase and saying, okay, Mike, you're smoking something or drinking something too heavy here. That's that like in really getting down to the wisdom of it. It's a really deep concept. And when we deny that, um, practice of living in the present moment, we find ourselves saying later, oh my God, there's a big moment coming and I'm not practiced and skilled at being present in any moment. So then you know what? You're fucked. 
Because you're about to head into a moment that you've made to be too big. You're starting to feel small and you have not practiced being present. So yeah, that for good reason, that person should start feeling some anxious and panic. You didn't really want that though, did you? No, I did. No, I, I, I actually, <laughs> I, if, if, to be honest with you, I feel like I'm listening to a podcast and I'm just sitting back in my chair trying to process it all. And I suddenly go, oh heck, now I've got to ask him something else. Yeah, no, no, no. no. Let, let, let's, let's play with that one a lot. Cause it's, a, I think it's a good question. And because we could, we could go the other way as well and say, okay, let's play the game. Somebody says, Hey, what do I do? There's some mechanical things that we could suggest people do, you know, like, okay, let's play this game. How do you want to be when you go up into, you know, grab the microphone? Well, I want to be calm and grounded. Okay. Have you ever been in a situation like this before where you're a little, you're a little nervous, either physically or mentally, and you figured it out and they say, yeah. And I say, okay, when was that? They say, well, back in four years ago, I had this big speech. Again, see the model's all wrong. I had this big speech and I just crushed it. I say, oh good. How'd you figure that out? And they say, well, I don't really know. And I go back and say, well, okay, you're kind of screwed. So let's figure it out. And they say, Mike, I've only got five minutes left. What are you talking about? What are we doing? I'm saying I'm building in your mind a credible story that you can go do something that's difficult. So give me a reason why you can do difficult things. And they say, why are you being an asshole? I say, well, you've got to figure it out. Like, can you do something that's difficult? And if you can't, then you're going to go up there and it's going to be difficult. If you can give me at least one reason why you have the right to do difficult things, that's going to help you. And they say, okay, okay, yeah, I did this and I did that and I've done – and I say, good, keep going. What else have you done? They say, well, I've done this in the past. I say, man, this is lazy. You've got to do this work in advance. You've got to externalize all these wonderful highlight reels and these stories in your mind so that you've – you know and you can remember when your ancient brain takes over and hijacks your thinking brain, when that survival brain takes over, that you have externalized your, in, your highlight reel to remind yourself that you've earned the right to say to yourself, I can do some really cool things in my life and this is one of them. And then the next part that I would go to is say, listen, if you're, if you're jacked up in your thoughts, what's your body feel like? And people on a scale of one to 10, when they start freaking out, they, they say like, I'm at an eight. You know, I just got too much buzz. I got too much adrenaline. I've, you know, my, my, I'm sweating in weird places. You know, we don't need to talk more about that. My, my cotton mouth has taken over. You know, all of these things start taking place for folks and it becomes really unsettling. Then we begin to notice that other people are noticing that we're sweating in weird places and we've got cotton mouth and, you know, all of that takes place and that now we're really screwed. So if that's the case, if the body's too switched on, now we got to do some sort of uh, skill to back that down, which is breathing. Right, breathing a long exhale is is um, is primed with us to be able to relax. Our ancestors figured out when they were running from saber to tigers that at the end of that run they said, ah, and they got that luxury long exhale. So now when we take a long exhale, it's paired with a relaxation state. Now, how long does it take to become relaxed once you're at an eight or a nine on that intensity scale? It depends on how how much training you've done how skilled you are at breathing. So that's why we do, we, we do need to do the front loading of mental skills training so it's there for us when we screw up the way we're thinking about something. Now, I'll tell you another uh, quick little story is that Coach Carroll, um, we're heading into this, the, our first Super Bowl. So Coach Carroll's the uh, Super Bowl, or I'm sorry, the Seattle Seahawks head coach. And we talked a lot about the right way um, to couch or to to help the guys think about going into the Super Bowl. Cause it's so easy, so easy to go into this 
event thinking this is the big game. This is it. I have to do something special. Can I handle it? It's so easy to think that way that that we want to remind people that no, 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 there's no such thing as a big game. There's no such thing as a big play, a big whatever. It's this moment. And let's work on you being great in this moment, right now, in this meeting. Like, be great, be you, be grounded, be present. And if you get yourself, this is what he says to the team one day. He says, if you get to the beginning of the game and the fireworks are going off and the media is like on point and it's crazy and you start to feel a little different, in the locker room or when you get on the field, love it. Love the adrenaline. Use it. Embrace it because it's not going to last. It's going to go away quickly. So just love it. Let it wash over you so you don't have to fight it. You can just play with it. That is so much better than feeling adrenaline and feeling like, oh, my God, I'm screwed up. I'm, I, it, it is sometimes harder for people to perform when they're all screwed up you know, with adrenaline. But it's just another way to say, let's play. Let's not have to be so serious about everything. What, what it makes me think of, though, Michael, is that people go to conferences or seminars or they go to meetings or their presentations, podcasts, blogs, and they read about being great. And they are taught about it. They hear about it. They see it. There's this constant thing about in the future, you can be great if you follow these 10 steps. But what I just love about that is when you bring the players back to right, not the Super Bowl this weekend, but right now in this meeting, in this moment, be great. That to me is a profound switch. And I don't think people bring it to that moment because I think they go to the meeting thinking all about this weekend coming or they sit down to do something that's all about, they read it in the, to, to be, do something great in the future. They're not actually thinking in this moment, and I love that, in this meeting right now, right this minute, be great. What would you need to do? To me, that's a really profound fundamental change to being in the moment and actually being your best and rehearsing right now, right on this podcast, rehearsing for what's going to come up in the future. That's exactly it. And like literally it's, it's not splitting your attention between this meeting or this conversation and doing imagery about what would happen later, it's lock in for 15 seconds in the most authentic way you can to this conversation. And when your mind wanders, and remember the natural state of our mind is like a drunk monkey, for some of us, it's double-fisted for sure. You know, that natural state of the mind, that's that's a joke. I'm glad you guys, yeah, I'm glad we're still with it. And so that double fisted drunk <laughs> I'm think, I think about a recording studio here, Michael, when I hear drunk monkeys, I'm thinking, you do know us well. You've picked us pretty well. You are obviously very good at what you do because you've picked a studio in one. Drunk monkeys. Hello to our friends of Doseki. <laughs> oh, God, so good. Okay, so, um, so the natural state of our mind is like a drunk monkey, double fisted, curious, sloppy, emotional, all over the place, easily distracted. Check, Listen, check, check, check. Check, check, yeah, yeah. yeah. So you just guide, <laughs> you just guide that, that monkey back to right now. Just right now. That's all you need to do. And to lock in for 15 seconds. And then when it wanders again, come right back to now. And that's how we practice what we call being on time. Right? Being on time with the present moment. Back to your thought about being at the center of this moment. The way to do it is to be on time. Go. Say... The drunken monkeys have gotten out of control. I want to create a little scenario and then see whether what we've talked about for the last few minutes is, in fact, the way you would deal with it. You have a player who hasn't played well for the last two or three games. 
and is in a pretty dark place with themselves, is lacking confidence, is seeing themselves, and probably the imposter syndrome is doubting their place in the team and they've dug themselves into that hole. They've lost their sense of self. There's also a person amongst us listening to the show whose partner has just left them. They are now in that same place. So the player, the partner, they're in that dark place questioning everything, thinking they'll never be happy again. There is somebody who just got laid off today and they were laid off because they were felt as though they couldn't do the job and so they are down on themselves. They're talking themselves into a very dark place. The rehearsal and taking them through our preparation for the moment, would you use the same tools or would you say rewind this show, play the last five to six minutes and then add something to it. What would be your take on that? Uh, it's, you guys are you guys ask very good, thoughtful questions that are really getting to the for a couple of, of drunk for a couple of drunk monkeys. monkeys. <laughs> 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 oh God, I love it. Yeah, so that's a, it's a really good question. And um, what you're what you're requiring to what you're requiring in that conversation is to. Um, to orientate oneself in, with that person from a sense of compassion and to remember that we are all suffering. All of us are suffering. So now it's going to get heavy. You brought the heavy stuff up and this is, so here's the realness of it, right? Is that all of us are suffering, you and me and that person. It's just that we're noticing based on their performance, the suffering that they're experiencing. Just because you have poor, poor just because you have poor performance doesn't mean that you suffer. But at the essence of the human experience, there is deep suffering that we all work from. And yes, I would not change much. I would remind people um, to embrace that suffering, to learn from it, to observe it, to know that they are not their thoughts. They are not their body. They are far bigger than that. The observer of their experience is who they are at their essence. And that is so much larger. There's an ancient wisdom that I love. I just love. It's that um, that place within you that water cannot wet, wind cannot blow, and fire cannot burn, that's the essence of who you are. And to help people re-anchor to that experience um, is, I think, a really important process. So how do you do that? Well, we've got to shift the story a little bit in their mind, remind them that they're far bigger than this performance. This is just a phase in time, and it sucks, and I'm right there with you. And I'm not going to give you the answers to your solution. I don't pretend to have any advice for you. I'll walk the path with you. I'll hold the flashlight and tell you what I think is coming up down the path. Um, but this is your journey uniquely for you to sort out. And this sounds like it's a tough period in time for you. And so there's no, there's no hack. There's no shortcuts. There's no seven steps. There's no secrets that I have or that anyone in this space understands. Like it's relationships and that are at the center of us becoming our best self. And becoming our authentic self. It's the relationship you have with yourself. It's the relationship you have with nature, with other people, with God. It's the relationships with your craft, with winning, with losing, with suffering, with joy. It's those relationships that are center of us becoming who we're working on becoming. Absolutely beautiful, mate. Cha-ching. Yeah, gold. Good. If, good. Um, Mike, if I can call you Mike. Um, yeah. If I was to look into your soul when the shit's hitting the fan and things aren't going your way, 
And I could look deep inside Michael Gervais at that moment where you're having to deal with some of these things. What would I see? What would I feel? What would I hear that helps you cope with those moments? And are, th- are you asking about those moments, meaning uh, difficult experiences in my life? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So if we go into my soul and you want to understand what it's like when I'm in moments of crisis or chaos, uh, it's probably not that different than other people's, which is like, um, man, this is, this is hard. Like this is really hard. And there's a sadness and we call it the sixth dimension, which is this loneliness that we all experience. And so there's a sadness, there's a separation, there's a loneliness there's a worry that I, how I've contributed to the experience and the suffering of others. You know, there's, a, there's an overwhelming wanting to understand what I've done and what my blind spots are so that I can learn from it. And um, you know, it's, it feels like there's a, a ripping or a separation from joy and happiness. And it feels like it's miles away. Now, all of that happens for me. It's not based on performance and looking bad. Like I feel like that skin was shed pretty well uh, long ago. It's about letting others down. It's about hurting other people, and it squarely sits in, inside of relationships. And so I don't know if I can describe – I think it's a really wonderful and, and uh, important question that you're asking – but it feels like a ripping or separation and there's a sad side there when it's really hard. Now, that being said, I think all of what I just described is super healthy. It's the amount of time spent there that, it, that dictates the health of a person, the prowess or the skill or the command of a person's own mind and emotional experience. When we get stuck in those experiences, we call those mental disorders right? Depression or anxiety or fill in the blanks. And I'm not suggesting a mental disorder. I'm suggesting, okay, let me put an asterisk in what I just said. When we ask people, what do you really want in life? Most people say, I just want to be happy. They say, hold on now. You want to be muted from every other emotional experience in life? When, When mom dies, you want to be happy? When, you know, like, you, you, you don't want to ever feel frustration when things aren't going well. You don't want to feel fear. You don't want to feel any of those agitated, difficult states. And I respond, I want to feel alive. I want to feel animated. I want to have command and not get lost in those emotions, but I want to feel them to their fullest and move into the next, uh, the center of the next moment. And that might be sadness again, but that's the, that's the process to allow things to um, be fluid in one's life is to feel it, to feel it fully and to let it wash over you as quickly as possible so that you can not be clouded into the opportunity of the, what the next moment holds. Beautiful. Oh, I want to I just build on that, Michael, and, and take you back. In the, the show you did with Jewel, who was a singer-songwriter, and i got to say, I've listened to it twice. It was an absolutely beautiful what a lady. I mean, Jewel is just an amazing lady to listen to in terms of her story and what she's done and how she's dealt and how she and where she is today in sharing her story. And in going through that show with Jewel, who also is a big fan of the show, hi to, to Jewel, um, <laughs> <laughs> we wish. Um, in, in, in Jewel revealing and talking, you actually revealed some of your own soul 
And you said that when you're in fourth grade, you were 12 years old, you said you had this feeling of being hollow and, and you described it as a feeling of emptiness. And that word emptiness, I'd have to say that I believe that a lot of people are walking around in that place today where they feel as though they've lost their mojo and things aren't great. They're not really bad, but I just feel empty. Like I just feel a bit lost. Describe describe that from your experience of what that's like and how you have worked either for yourself or others to help them find something that, that fills the emptiness. Uh, I think honoring the emptiness is the important part, is to not finding something to fill it, but to honor it, to feel it, to have the courage to go into it, to go deeper than you thought before. And to know that um, we don't need uh, quick hits of dopamine or stimulation or adrenaline or risk or approval or any of that external noise, if you will, to take away. It'll never take away that sense of uh, emptiness or pain or loneliness. Now, I think that that's how you do it. And, And for me, it's not that different than when I was a kid and I heard, I think there's three responses. I'll take me out of it for a minute. When we hear um, a, a noise in our closet, when we're, imagine when you're eight years old and you hear noise in your closet, I think there's three responses. Either you get as quiet as you can and hope that if there's a monster in there, that it, if it comes out, it won't hear or see you. That's one response. Another response is to throw off your covers and run to that door and get in there and say, who's in there? Come out, monster. And then the third response is like, I want to get up and I'm trying to get, but I, I'm afraid to actually open the door. So there's some sort of hesitation in there. So it's fight, flight, and freeze, if we put it in neuro, neurobiological terms. And I think that um, most of us, when we feel that we've lost our mojo, we've lost our way, we've got a little bit of hint of depression, a little bit of hint of uh, loneliness or separation, a bit of anxiety that just makes it all that much better, that we are working so hard to fill those holes that um, we forget what it's like to just actually be an observer and an investigator of our true nature. And that's the pathway through it. Become an observer, a beginner's mind, a unique, curious um, uh, person to explore your own experience. And literally when I'm agitated, I'll take just a quick moment and have what's called like a meta observation or metacognition. It's a fancy um, psycho jumble name uh, for just watching. Like, look at how agitated I am. Look at this. And that changes the entire nature of it. I go from uh, observer, from first person experience, like in in a car game, like on a video game, to the third person where I'm just watching me drive around the track. And it's so much better. I I love that cupboard analogy. Is it fair to say that now you would choose to go open the door and look inside and go, what's there? And I guess where I'm I'm going with it, Michael, is that if you meet somebody who is feeling a bit empty, they lost their mojo, is part of the conversation that analogy where you can pull the covers up over your head and ignore it and hope it's going to go away. You can endeavor to do something, but you're essentially going to freeze in the moment. You know you should, but you're going to freeze. Or do you go to the cupboard, look at it, embrace it, attack it? With that, if I was talking to somebody, if for you personally, are you more now with that analogy, more likely to be the guy who's going to go to the cupboard, look inside and say, who's there? 
And do you use that sort of analogy to help frame a picture in people's minds of the options they've got? Yes. Uh, I think that like my response is uniquely is for me, and I don't think it's the right response. I think that uh, it's not the right response for other people. And I think that knowing that there's a few options that I can play with makes all the difference. I could pull the covers over. You know, I could, I could run up and get frozen and not know what to do in the middle of, you know, or I could throw the door open and say, like, what's going on in here? You know, so I just knowing that I have some options, I think is really important. And I've got to explore with those options to know which ones might be right at the right time. I think it's beautiful. I love it. I, um, I'm going to ask you a couple of quick fire questions. I'm going to throw this back on to you, Mark. This is what you'd normally ask your guests. Uh, would you describe yourself as a rule follower or a risk taker? I love it. And, um, you know what I've learned is that <laughs> there are, um, yeah. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to tell you a story and I'm going to break it up and then I'm going to give you an easy answer. Okay. So, um, I was sitting with, um, a, a good friend of mine and we're having a conversation and he says, um, he says, all right, so if you got a chance to go to Mars, would you go? And I've asked this question to a lot of people and instantly. And so the question, first person to go to Mars, 50% chance of coming back alive. Would you go and right out of the gates? I go, yes, of course. Yes. And then I was, um, I was a nine month old father, meaning that I had a, I was just became, I was a new father to a nine month old. I said, Ooh, wait, 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 wait. And, and he saw the hesitation. He says, what, what's going on? I said, I don't know. Like, am I being selfish? And then it begs the question, like, okay, if you're a risk taker and you don't take risks, what are you teaching your son? Is that the greatest risk? You know, but like, right. So, so the answer to that is, um, uh, is pretty simple, but there's one other textured nuance, which is, and I've learned this from the interviews with folks that I've, I've spoken to, is that, and this came from a conversation on the Finding Mastery podcast with Tina Seelig. If you've had a chance to listen to hers, it was great. And she's, she reminded me that there's different um, levers of risk. So there's financial risk, there's emotional risk, there's physical risk, there's ethical risk. And so she reminds us that there's many levers of risk. And so um, I still say yes to all of them, <laughs> you know, like, yes, I want to. <laughs> and so, but so I just wanted to answer it in a textured way and then say, yeah, I love it. I love how it feels to be right on the edge. I love, um, when I can bet on me and bet on people that I trust and, um, and that we'll, we'll figure it out no matter what happens. So if I build off that, are you an introvert or an extrovert? Well, that's funny that you asked that <laughs> is that because I, I was, I think I was born an extrovert. I think that was my first preference. And then I magnified that in such a level that I became almost obnoxious with extroversion. And then I've, 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 <laughs> I've folded back to have a deeper appreciation for the introverted side. And I think I'm, um, I'm squarely in the middle on any given day, which doesn't feel like a crisis. It feels like I'm able to toggle back and forth. Um, and so I, I, right now I'm really enjoying a lot of listening other than this freaking conversation that you guys got me talking about. <laughs> but, I'm, yeah, making, I'm making you talk, yeah. Yeah, I know. But I like listening a lot. I'm, I'm learning so much right now from other people that it, it feels just almost addicting. So, yeah. Pressure for you comes from? Internally. So there are external pressures that are real, but the internal pressures um, are what make it so. Life 
all comes down to? This moment. How do you calm yourself, Michael? You are working in some high, I mean, Super Bowl for many people is the pinnacle in sport, particularly in your sport, but in a lot of sports, the Super Bowl with the audience, that's a big, big moment. There are moments when you have some most incredible guests on and I'm sure you get in that place where you find your heart starting to race, your adrenaline's pumping. How how does Michael Gervais calm yourself? Well, there's there's two parts to it. One is a psych, having a psychological framework that loves intensity, having a psychological framework that looks forward to getting on on the edge and feeling those um, experiences. And so that's one of it. Um, and then so that's part of a framework. But the other part of a framework is having clarity of my philosophy, who I want to be as a man, the, the compass that keeps me true and centered. And, you know, so having a compass and then having an appreciation for the frontier, those are all part of it. So that when I feel those experience, those internal activation experiences, then I go, Oh yeah. Okay. That's right. This is the stuff I really like doing. Like, okay, here I am. And then if I feel like I'm just too hot, if you will, like too emotionally uh, switched on, then I, I, I use uh, my inner dialogue to help manage that. And I use breathing, you know, to, to mm. calm myself down. And, um, there's a, a story that I'll, I'll kind of close this with for you guys is that it was a number of years ago and I thought I was just graduating with my, uh, one of my degrees and that sounds arrogant. I was just finishing up one of my degrees and yeah, that still sounds arrogant. <laughs> Sorry for the self-editing. <laughs> Jesus. Cause I have God. so many degrees, which now, which good degree was it now? Let me take it back. Harvard, Stanford. Uh... No, 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 Jesus. Like that is awful, <laughs> but okay. So I was, I hear because I'm about to say something that is so humbling and wonderfully so is that I was uh, <laughs> great setup, mate. <laughs> I know, right? I'm super humble right now <laughs> as I'm thrashing in this conversation. Um, yeah, so I was about to go on stage. I was uh, presenting at an international conference, and I was a, I thought I was something special. That's what I'm trying to get to. I was like, okay, <laughs> I haven't even finished my my graduate degree, and I'm like, okay, look at me. This is amazing. So green and so wet behind the ears. And literally, I, f- I think that my suit was way too big for me, um, figuratively and literally. And I was challenging a um, very important theory in the field. And so I'm feeling all the mojo you can imagine. I'm backstage. The vibe is good. I can feel the environment filling up, that, that familiar noise of you know people uh, congregating. And I'm looking out uh, stage right, and I see the, the emptiness of the stage and the podium. My slide is up there. My slides are on the on the large screen behind us, and I'm feeling great. And my buddy that I was with, um, he nudges me, and he says, hey, Gervais, you see who's in the front row? And I say, yeah. And I didn't know who it was. And he goes, that's your guy. I said, what are you talking about? He goes, that's who you're changing the theory of. And instantly that man became 12 feet tall, 400 pounds. <laughs> like I just hit the panic button, like the full panic button. My heart started pounding. I literally was in a different body than I was, I, I had ever been in. And I went from like in zero to two seconds, I went from swag to an absolute wreck. And so, um, you know, that, that was because at my, at my, uh, core, I wasn't sure that I could handle it. I wasn't sure. I thought that I was just 
something special, but I knew that I didn't, I hadn't put in a 20 years of work to really understand this stuff. And I knew that this dude was, oh, I thought that this guy was going to just rip me apart once I got on stage during the Q and a. And so, you know, like we have to do the work before we think we're something special. And that work is lonely work. It's difficult work. It's challenging work. And it is wonderful to be able to figure out how to be playful in moments that are intense. Part of that is asking, I suspect, part of that is asking yourself a lot of questions. And I really, I love Finding Mastery. And when I first found Mastery, I said to my wife that it's a show where you do ask interesting questions and you don't let people off the hook and you will dig into the meaning the moment. Of all the, the questions that you ask on the show, Michael, what's your favorite question to ask a guest? What is the one question that you would like to, if you had the chance to sit down with someone who's on the path of mastery, what's the one question that you'd like to ask them? I, I just, I, I love that question because it just reveals so much about what they think about and where their curiosity is. And I love that question. Mm-hmm. Two quick things before we finish. In fact, three quick things. But uh, one quick request: Could you share the story of the shitbird? <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, you like that story. I do like that story, and I think that it's a story that a lot of people struggle with. Yeah. So the idea is, um, there was an athlete who. Um, we were talking about like the things that she says to herself and um, they're just, they were so disparaging and she was just cutting and ripping herself apart. And there was a comment that I think one of that I made or yeah, it must've been me is that, you know, I, I, it sounds like you're saying things to yourself that you would never say to another human being. And she goes, you're right. I'm just talking shit to myself all the time. And she said, you know what it's like? She goes, it's like I have this bird that, that lands on my shoulder and it just shits all over me. And, you know, I'm feeling good about myself and it lands on my shoulder and it shits all over me. And now I got to deal with this bird shit on me. And to make things worse, like, like this is not how I want to feel and look. And like now I look all, okay. So she was just, she would talk about the shit bird. And she said, you know, with greater awareness, I'm able to spot the shit bird when it's flying down and it's trying to swoop on me and it would, it would, you know, I would get better at it. And then when it would land, I would be, I'd be able to spot it and I'd quickly brush it off and maybe it would only shit on me a little bit. And then over time I'd see it in the tree and I'd like point to it and I'd say, you shit bird, you stay over there. I'm tired of you shitting on me. And then that shitbird over time, because it was constantly swished away, it just felt the bad vibes. She said, now that shitbird just floats around every once in a while, but it misses me. And so I went from having a shitbird on my shoulder to having a relationship with it, to swatting it away, to, and then essentially it's a longer, like poetic story, if you will, that I butchered, like with this idea that. <laughs> well, you butchered <laughs> the, the bird. The butchered the bird, yeah. <laughs> the relationship we have with ourselves, yes. you know, um, is really important. And the conversations and what we say to ourselves. And I, but that thought that we say things to ourselves that we would never say to another human being, because if we said to them, you suck, you're never going to make it, you're so freaking stupid, what, what are you doing? If we said that to someone, they'd feel crippled, they feel awful about themselves, but somehow we think we can say it. 
And that's kind of the essence of the shitbird story. And I, I just, I'm sorry that I butchered the story, but I, I think it's a great, great example of like self-talk. Yeah, I'm glad you told it. That's great. No, I think it's a great story. And I think the fact you butchered it makes me feel as though you're one of us drunken monkeys. <laughs> two-fisted. Just, just, just three of us two-fisted drunken monkeys just talking, you know, talking amongst themselves. That's a, there's actually a T-shirt in that, Robbo. There is a T-shirt in that. And the good thing about having two fists is that one Dosecki in each fist. Okay, listen, I'm, I'm not getting off this call unless you guys tell me where this came from. Each of you has got a unique story. Where did the mojo, the, the, the idea to do the mojo show, where did that come from for you? Was it a, a personal struggle? Was it like you, you know, you're, uh, you learned something, want to share? Where did, they, where did this come from for you guys? Oh, geez. How the, far back do you original, want to go? <laughs> well, no, the original genesis is actually not that long a story, but the original genesis, Michael, was um, I'd had a dream maybe 20 years ago of what I wanted for my perfect life. And part of that was having a farm, like a property, a ranch. And I finally got the ranch and it was two and a half hours out of Sydney. So I would come up on the weekend and drive back during the week, do my work, come back on the weekend and run the property. And this was going back seven or eight years ago. And I loved my country music, but I was tired of my country music library and Apple Music and Spotify wasn't a big thing back then. So you had to buy music. And I went back into podcasts and I started listening to podcasts. But what I got tired of was the lack of production, the lack of good production values and the fact that they talked about themselves and their latest apps, cookbooks, free e-books, where you could see them speak. It was all money-making things. And great entrepreneurial ideas start when you solve your own problem. And I had a problem with the shows not adding value, talking about themselves too much and having really poor production. So I rang Robbo because we used to work in commercial radio at a rock station here in Australia. And I rang and said, look, I've got an idea for a show that we would like that had high production values, was produced like a proper radio show, was edited properly with really valuable questions. We don't waste anybody's time. Um, And we can make a difference to people in and out of work, which means we had a wide variety of topics we could play on as opposed to being too narrow and running out of uh, content. So we... Four years ago, I guess we had a crack at it and didn't really know what we were doing, but we made a show that we liked and it's just kind of progressed from there. World class. You guys have done great. And this experience for me has been great. You know, like, so you guys, yeah, 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 for sure. Like world class. Well done. Yeah, yeah. We, Thank we, you, mate. That's uh, that's very high praise coming from you, Michael Juve. Before you speak too quickly, go back and have a listen to episode one. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah, isn't it funny? like the, the learning curve is outrageous, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, well, absolutely. I mean, as Gary mentioned, I mean, I've got 30 years of radio under my belt. Gary's got similar, but this is such a different beast. And, you know, you go into it thinking, oh, yeah, pff, it'll be easy. And then you you realize that hang on it's it's you know while while radio does influence it it's so different. Yeah, cool. Have you guys cracked the right uh, business model, like the right economic model, where um, it feels like you're being rewarded as well for the insight and the, oh. and the time that you're putting into it? We got paid two cases <laughs> of beer. Oh, literally about those, it. thank you to our friends at Dos Equis. those monkeys um, <laughs> this has been absolute gold I've got a page of notes which always shows me how much value I personally take from a show and I figure if I can personally get value then I think everybody's going to get value so 
thank you for your time. Thank you for sharing your honesty, your philosophies. Um, people will want to follow you up because you do awesome work. Where do we find out more about you and your show? Oh, yeah, good. Thank, thanks so much for having me, guys. I appreciate the, the space you've created and the questions, the thoughtful questions that you've asked. And so I really appreciate what you, um, how you've conducted this. So thank you, literally. Um, so, yeah, so I think there's a couple places to find me. You can head over to Finding Mastery, the podcast, and that's findingmastery.net and check out what we're doing there. That's been fun. And then Coach Carroll, the head coach of the Seattle Seahawks, we uh, built a business together called Compete to Create, and that's competetocreate.net. And so if you're, you know, that's for business folks that want to learn how he switches on cultures for high-performing cultures, and then uh, my tools and, t- and strategies on how to train the minds of people that want to become their very best. And so that's a, a business platform there that we're working on. It's been great. And then the social media stuff has been fun as well. So Twitter is at Michael Gervais. And Instagram is at Finding Mastery. Beautiful. Mate, I can't thank you enough. Okay, brother. Good stuff, man. You guys are awesome. And I'm going to be down in your hood. I don't know where you guys live, but I'm, I'm going to be down in your hood uh, a couple of weeks. So You've got the Skype address and email address. No excuses not catching up for a Dosecchi then. Dosecchi it is. Thanks, guys. See you, monkey number three. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well done. Monkey's out. <laughs> your monkey's out. <laughs> okay. Bye, guys. We interrupt this program to bring you a special <laughs> the Mojo Radio Show. Right. Ladies and gentlemen. Do you know what's even better about that interview? Tell me. The fact that he's heading down here. He is. Can I just say, if we manage to catch up with him, he's one guest. I mean, I'd like to look forward to meeting all our guests, but he's one guest I would be especially excited to meet. Well, it's likely to happen in one way or another because a listener of the show runs an international uh, health food company. And they are looking at partnering with us and Michael Gervais for their product. And this is not a paid thing for us, but it is an opportunity for us to spend more time with, let's call him MG, MG, MG. Michael Gervais. Uh, So details will follow on that, but um, we could well be catching up with him in Australia in the next couple of months again, which would be just brilliant. Nice. Nice. So, folks, one quick thing. This is for you, our listeners, before we close the shoe. Last week, we had a brilliant discussion with Kyla Colbin from Singularity University. And if you haven't heard that show, go back and listen to it. Do yourself a favour. If you want to know where technology is going and what you need to do, you and me, to prepare for it, it was an absolutely cracking, eye-opening show. Such a wonderful lady. Kyla got in touch with us after the show Uh, because Kyla is putting together a big event for Singularity University in Sydney next year, which essentially brings together some of the foremost thinkers in technology. Um, It's actually called the Singularity U Summit uh, in Sydney. It's in February next year. It's a cracking event. And what Kyla did is she's offered us a special deal for the Mojo Radio Show listeners and I've got a code for you, so to speak. And if you use it at checkout, you get $500 off early bird and $1,000 off the full price. Wow. Now, that's a pretty generous discount for our listeners. If you want to go, folks, all you need to do is email the show at info at themojoradioshow.com.au. I will personally respond to you with the code. You go on the Singularity U Summit website 
you put in your details and you get the bonus. So um, that's just for our listeners. Pretty cool, though. So just email me, guys. Let us know that you want to go. We'll hook you up. You know the nice thing about this show? It's ours and we can do what we want. Which means you're going to play something left field with absolutely no reason to play it except we can. Well, except we can. And the fact that, you know, Rocktober unofficially starts next week. So my mind automatically went to rock and roll. I think Def Leppard, let's get rocked. Can't go wrong, we're out. Do we want to get rocked?
Mojo Radio Show is produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at the Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. For more about Gary, see garybertwhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production, check out voodoosound.com.au and for the right voice, realtimecasting.com. Andrew Peter speaking. See you next time.